This evening we look at the concluding section or pericope in the so-called Lucan infancy narratives, Luke chapter 2, verses 40 to 52. So if you have found the place in the scriptures, follow along as I read the narrative. And the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And his parents used to go to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became twelve, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, and his parents were unaware of it but supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey. And they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. And it came about that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And Jesus said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? And they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. And he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. It is a singular narrative, unique to Luke's gospel, a pericope found nowhere else in the Bible. Though singular and unique to the third gospel, it is clear that Luke intended it to be, on the one hand, the conclusion to the birth and infancy narratives as well as, on the other hand, a bridge, a bridge to the narrative of the public ministry of our Lord Jesus. Now, you will observe that intention of Luke in the setting of the pericope, place, on location, on location in the place, temple of Jerusalem which is the second visit to the temple in Jerusalem, which Luke records, that first visit also in this chapter, verses 22 to 38, so that the sequence of the infant Jesus in the temple and what is revealed about him is followed by the boy Jesus in the temple and what is revealed about him there. But there is not only a recurrence of place or location, there is a time frame here, a chronology of sequence in time. 
which adds to the unfolding narrative plot of Luke's gospel. This transitional bridge of the boy Jesus at 12 years of age contains an unfolding organic revelation of who he is, of his self-disclosure, if you will. Luke tells you who Jesus is with angelic annunciation, angelic choral glorification, shepherd visitation, old Simeon and Anna presentation. All of these voices in Luke's infancy narrative disclose who Jesus is from the lips of others. But here, at age 12, Jesus speaks. For the first time in Luke's narrative, Jesus speaks and he tells you in his own lips who he is. Here is Jesus' self-disclosure of his identity at age 12, even as we have had disclosures of his identity as a newborn babe. The portrait of Jesus of Nazareth in Luke's story unfolds from the voices of others about the subject to the voice of the subject about himself. What others have said about the infant now is said by the boy himself. He is the Son of God, the Lord, so the angels say. Now here he says, I am the Son of my Father, the heavenly Son of my heavenly Father, so I say. This chronological narrative is the link between the infant Jesus and the adult 30-year-old Jesus, his age according to Luke chapter 3, verse 23. Here, the child Jesus of 12 shows how the infant has become a young boy. And when Jesus next appears in Luke's narrative at about age 30, the young boy will be a man, and heaven itself will be opened. And out of heaven, the voice of his father in heaven will disclose that this infant to boy to man is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Chapter 3, verse 22 of Luke's Gospel. The motif of the narrative segments is consistent and uniform. This infant born in Bethlehem of Judea, this boy who sits in the midst of the teachers in the temple, this man who is baptized in the waters of the Jordan, this one is disclosed by angels. This one discloses himself. This one is disclosed by his ontological father in heaven, to be the Son of God, the Father, the ontological Son of the ontological Father, eternally beloved Son of the eternally loving Father himself, now self-disclosed by way of incarnation. But as much as the narrative reveals about the self-disclosure of Jesus, it is a narrative full of the unexpected. 
This last of Luke's infancy tales is a narrative which grasps and holds our attention because of the unexpected. We don't expect this story at all. We have a full 12-year jump in Christ's biography, and we don't expect to meet him in Jerusalem for the second time. We've already met him in Jerusalem once. He had returned to Nazareth. Surely we would learn more about his childhood life in his hometown, but there is only silence. There is only 12 years of deafening silence. So let it be, and don't invent stories about it, and don't make movies about it. Let it be. Another unexpected incident in this story, we don't expect him to be not in the caravan returning from the Passover in Jerusalem to his home in Nazareth. And since we don't expect him not to be in the caravan with his parents and relatives, we don't expect to find him in the temple where we certainly don't expect him to be, notice the phrase in the verse, in the midst, right in the middle of the teachers of the scriptures, in a back and forth Q&A. We don't expect that. And to top that off, we don't expect him to be amazing, those adult teachers of the law, with his Q to their A and implicitly his A to their Q. We don't expect him to transcend his parents, not at age 12. Rather, we expect him to be in fifth commandment submission, honoring his parents which he does expectedly in verse 51, while not surrendering his relation to his heavenly father, verse 49. We do not expect this reminder of the concurrence of familial parental authority transcended by, superseded by divine parental relation. We don't expect it, but... There it is. I bow to my parents in the things of earth that are within their provenance, but I serve my Father in heaven in the things that are in our divine and supernatural provenance. The interrelation of the supernatural and the natural is before us here. The supernatural relation, my Father. The natural relation, my parents. With submission appropriate to both save where the supernatural relationship transcends the natural relationship. You see here a foreshadowing of the incident in Luke's second volume, where Peter declares in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. There is a submission higher than parental submission. Finally, we don't expect Jesus to be fully conscious of his filial divine nature and that relation at age 12. And yet here it is. 
As a young boy of 12, our Lord is conscious of his supernatural relation to his Father in heaven and that he reciprocally is conscious of his supernatural identity as incarnate son of his heavenly Father. If he can say, my Father, here at age 12, that means he's the son of that Father. Father of mine, son I am of that Father of mine. Father, son, interface. He is as conscious of his sonship here as he is of his divine father's fatherhood. Now, with respect to the structure, the large frame around verse 40 and 52 brackets this unit because of the duplicated vocabulary that frames it in, brackets it together. The other thing that you'll notice is also the location. The Jerusalem location is also another framing device for this unit. But more important is the duplication of his growth in favor and and understanding in verse 40 and his growth in favor and standing and understanding rather in verse 52. That frame around the boy and the young, the child and the young boy is what brackets this unit as a distinct narrative pericope and also Luke's capstone upon this series of narratives about the infant Jesus. That symmetry jumps out at you. But let's notice some other symmetries. I've numbered them, but I haven't filled them in on your outlines, so you may want to take your own notes from my comments. First of all, the infancy narratives end in the place in which they began. They begin in a place outside of Jerusalem, shifting to a story in the temple, chapter 1, verses 5 to 8. They end with a story in the temple, shifting to a place outside of Jerusalem, namely Nazareth, in chapter 2, verses 46 to 50. This symmetry of location, geographical place and location, is not accidental. It is intentional. Luke begins the infancy narratives the way he concludes them. It's another reason for saying that these first two chapters are a holistic narrative unit. They belong together. These last 12, 13 verses should be part of the original two-chapter pericopes because they finish off the narrative. Luke makes it clear. He goes back to the same paradigm, the same uh, geographical outside-inside-Jerusalem paradigm. Second, symmetry. The infancy narratives end with Jesus and the teachers in the temple discussing the scriptures. Well, what else would they talk about? They certainly wouldn't talk about the weather. And I don't think they were discussing the latest Roman sacred day. They were there as the doctors or teachers of the law, the teachers of the scripture. And Jesus was there as the one who was talking to them about the scriptures. The scriptures are the center of the discussion in the midst of which is Jesus, surrounded by the teachers. 
And how does Jesus end his post-resurrection biography in Luke's gospel? In chapter 24, verse 44, Jesus explains the scriptures, namely, and he specifies the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, which is generic for the writings, in the midst of his disciples. Can you not imagine an interesting and wonderful Q&A on that occasion after his resurrection when he is talking about his own self-disclosure in the law of Moses, in the writings of the prophets, and in the writings of the poets, namely the psalmist, etc., of the Old Testament? In other words, In the midst of his disciples, he's talking about the word of God and how he is the center of it, even as he's the center of the discussion in the temple in chapter 2, and he's the center of the discussion of the circle in chapter 24. Symmetry again. Luke's symmetry to reinforce the fact that Jesus is himself the fulfillment and accomplishment of the whole Old Testament canonical revelation. If you don't find him there, it's not because he's not. It's your fault for not seeing him. Now, I cut you a little slack that it may be difficult sometimes. I admit that. It is often hard work to find the Christological center of the Old Testament passages and verses. I admit that. But that doesn't mean it's not there. Just my brain's too stupid to see it. We're too slow to understand it. That's what the disciples on the road to Emmaus with. They're too slow to understand it. That's the reason he starts opening the scriptures to him and showing them in every part of the Bible where he is. So, like good disciples at Emmaus, when you open the Old Testament... You're looking for Jesus because that's what Jesus, that's where Jesus is. That's what he did with his disciples after his resurrection. He showed them that. So at any rate, happy hunting as you read your Old Testament because like good detective work, he's there. Sleuth him out. All right, now the third symmetry comes from the first words spoken by Jesus in Luke's gospel. I placed them in the Hebrew in the Hebrew in the Greek there so that you actually see them. It concerns my father, and that's what that Greek phrase to patros mu means, 249. But would you notice the symmetry? The last words spoken by Jesus in Luke's gospel concern exactly the same phrase. My father, to patros mu, Luke 24, verse 49. The first words of Jesus, the last words of Jesus, involve him talking about my father. Now, there is a duplication, there is a symmetry, there is a recursion, which draws you into the drama of what's inside this book. Because if this book is framed by my father in the first words of the central character, and my father as the last words of the central character, you better believe it's about a father-son relationship in between. 
Father displaying himself in the Son, the Son reciprocally displaying himself through the Father. In other words, the Son manifest by the Father's good pleasure throughout the whole book of Luke. There is an exceedingly high Christology in this third gospel. Luke frames it for you. First words, last words of Jesus, Son of God. Now, the fourth element of symmetry here is the first record of Jesus attending a Passover feast in Jerusalem. That record in verse 42 of chapter 2 is part of the inauguration of the Gospel of Luke. The last record of Jesus attending a Passover in Jerusalem is part of the conclusion of Luke's gospel, chapter 22, verse 1. First Passover, recorded by Luke. Last Passover, recorded by Luke. Now, there is a qualification here in the second chapter. You will note that in that verse, it says, as the custom was. So, it is conceivable that Jesus was taken up to Jerusalem at a Passover before he was 12. I won't argue that point. But I will observe that for Luke, that's not the important attendance. The important attendance is the one in which he utters his first words in this gospel. So that becomes the first Passover, in effect. And in 22, chapter 22, verse 1, we have the last Passover. I trust that after last week, you already know the implications of the last Passover of Jesus in Jerusalem. Whether it's Luke 22 or John 18 and 19, or Matthew 27, or Mark chapter 14. Luke frames it so that you won't miss it. Now, that's a survey of some of the symmetrical elements that are here in this pericope. Let's take a look at the vocabulary of this section and consider identical, that is, mirror reflections of duplicate vocabulary, and antithetical, that is, vocabulary which contains in it an antithesis. Once again, looking at how Luke is using language and using vocabulary in order to develop the story. All right, now... On your outline, I've listed verses 46 and 47 for the first example of an identical vocabulary repetition. Do you see what they, do you see what word I'm referring to? As you examine verse 46 and verse 47, what word is identical? What's he doing in verse 46? He's sitting among the teachers. He's doing what? Listening. Listening. What's he going, what's going on in verse 47? 
They were amazed at his understanding. They had all who had heard him. It's the same Greek word. It's translated two different ways in some of your versions, but it's the same Greek word in a present participle, hearing or listening. So hearing or listening is a duplicate way of saying it in English, but the Greek word is the same. So he's listening to them and they are listening to him. Same Greek word. Same Greek root, I should say. Not the same Greek participle. The form is slightly different. All right, now verses 47 and 48, the next indication of symmetry or identical use of language or near identical, I should say, though it is actually in the Greek cognate semantic domain. Nonetheless, what do you see in 47 and 48 that look similar or identical? Very good. Amazed and astonished. And in fact, the Greek word amazed here means to stand out with amazement. And the Greek word for astonished in verse 48 means to strike with amazement. So these are two Greek words which are synonymous by being part of what is called the same semantic domain. That is the same range of expression. Although they're not exactly alike, they are so similar that they are virtual synonyms. All right, so Jesus stands out in amazement to those in verse 47 who heard him, and he stands out in astonishment. His parents are struck with astonishment when they see him there. Reciprocal paradigm of identical, virtual identical recursion. And finally... The next uh, identical use of language in verse 48 and 49. And did you notice how we are led from the same word in 46 to 47? And then the same cognates from 47 to 48? And now here we are in 48 and 49. What do you see that is identical or similar in 48 and 49? Father? Pardon? Mm-hmm. Let's hold that one. That's not that's not identical. Looking or any other translation in your versions? Seeking, yes, seeking. It's the same imperfect of the Greek verb here, and it is duplicated in forty-eight and forty-nine. Now I pointed out that sequence of. The word in 46 recurs in 47. The word in 47 recurs in a synonym in 48. The word in 48 recurs in 49. It's almost like we have a chain link fence here, don't we? It's almost like we have les mots crochet. That is, these concatenated terms. Luke putting together a string of vocabulary that draws you along in the holistic, seamless garment of the narrative. It's a remarkable literary style. And, of course, it draws us into the drama, which is at the center of this. <clears throat> and we'll look at the central drama in terms of the antithetical categories. There are three major antithetical categories in this unit. <clears throat> and we start with verse 45 compared to verse 45, 46, rather. Antithetical. <clears throat> 
verse 45 to verse 46. Not finding versus finding. Very good. Not finding in verse 45. There's the antithesis. They would not find him, but they did find him in Jerusalem in verse 46. All right, now verse 47, but a long jump to verse 50. This is not a concatenated paradigm, concatenated antithesis, but it is an interesting antithesis. Verse 47, what do you find there in an antithetical relationship to what you find in verse 50? Understanding, not understanding. Very good. Understanding in verse 47. Amazed at his understanding in verse 50, his parents do not understand. They stand in antithesis even to the group of teachers, those who are in the crowd in the temple in Jerusalem, who are listening to Jesus ask his questions and also provide his own understanding. The words here for understanding are not exact duplicates, but they are Greek cognates, so they are related to one another in terms of semantic domain once more. But the major one was one that someone suggested was an identical relationship, verses 48 and 49. The different fathers. Verse 48 says, Whose father? What's 49 say? Now, there's an antithesis, isn't it? Yes, notice the contrast between your father and I and his saying to them, my father. And, of course, that is the central antithesis to this drama. That is the central feature that Luke is communicating in recording this story. What authority could be higher than honor your father and mother? Jesus. My father being honored. That's higher than my parental authority because he's the supreme parent in my case. And that's what's being revealed here. Okay, so that uh, parallel that Luke uses there, I'm not denying that Mary said it this way, but Luke places them in relationship. You see, he arranges the unfolding of the story so that in 48 and 49, you are struck immediately by the contrast of what Jesus is doing. Now, we do have commentators who say that Jesus is being insolent here. We do have theonomic types who say that Jesus is outside of the law. We do have federal vision idiots who also saying this is against the commandments. Dare I say that the one who makes the commandments has the right to set himself above the commandments. No, Jesus is not insolent here. Jesus is placing proper relationships before all who are hearing him. You are my parents. Verse 50 will indicate how he will do that. Or verse 51. Well, how he will submit to them. He is not rebelling against their authority. He is giving them proper 
obeisance in terms of the provenance in which they have right to demand obedience from him. But his Father in heaven has a higher right. There is a higher relationship. And that's what we pointed out in Peter's Acts 5 statement, we must obey God rather than men. You are authorities within this domain, but there is a higher authority over you and over this domain. You are authorities for me, Jesus says, within this natural domain, but there is a higher authority over me of a supernatural domain. Oh, you think this isn't important. You are living in a part of the 21st century where it may be supremely important to you. Whether you will deny Christ for the sake of saving your skin, or whether you will confess him because there is a higher obedience to the Savior who redeemed you. It may come to that. You may face martyrdom. It may come to that. You will not obey the the secular powers. You will not do what the government says you will do. You will not do what the radical left wing says you should do. You will not do it because God tells you not to do it and it will cost you. Is that not the very foundation of this American Republic? I owe obedience to a higher authority than King George III. I owe obedience to a Continental Congress which has been assembled by the representatives of 13 colonies. And I have the right to rebel against you if you command me to do what is wrong according to the law of God or according to the law of nature. Well, maybe we've forgotten how to fight for those kinds of things. Maybe we don't understand anymore that they're worth real life blood and sacrifice. But I assure you, if we don't, we are going to be forced to learn it because death is stalking us as Christians, even as I speak. And if you don't believe it, you just ask the bodies in Lahore and ask the 5,500 that were killed in Nigeria last week. You just ask those questions about yourself and your culture and your world. Civil disobedience has a lawful place in Christian moral ethics, but it is civil disobedience in direct violation of the law of God, not in direct violation of what you think you ought to get by demonstrations and forced marches. All right, this contrast here is then central to the narrative. It is central to the drama. It is central to relationship, Jesus' relationship to his earthly parents and Jesus' relationship to his heavenly Father. And it draws a finger to this very principle of where do you stand? Where do you stand with respect to obedience to higher authority? Do you ever have the right to resist it? I'm a Scotch-Irishman, and you better believe you have the right to resist it. Because that's what bloody Scotland fought for, and Ireland too. 
That's what Scotch-Irish colonialists fought for in George Washington's army. That's what, what Puritans fought for in England. They fought for the right to resist unlawful authority, even if it meant cutting the heads off of tyrannical kings. Now, I'm not defending the decapitation of tyrannical kings, but nonetheless, Charles I could have saved his neck if he'd been a man of honest integrity, and he wasn't. He was a deceitful liar. Tragically, ended up getting what he never thought he would get. But this principle of lawful resistance to unlawful authority and tyranny goes all the way back to John Calvin. It goes all the way back to Calvin's Institutes. And it comes to us through the French Huguenot trials in France with the Roman Catholic persecution, to the Puritans in England, to the colonists in New England, right down to our own Reformed tradition. The right to resist tyranny. It is a natural right, and it is a biblical right, or Peter is wrong for saying, we won't obey you. We refuse to obey you. We will not do what you've commanded us to do. Peter's dead wrong if there is not a principle of civil disobedience in the Bible. Daniel and his friends are dead wrong. They should have bowed down before the image. No, they wouldn't. Well, at any rate, this incident has a much broader implication in ethics and in human behavior and in the issue of civil disobedience, parental disobedience, etc. The rightful position of relationship with respect to authority. Would any Christian parent reasonably command their son or daughter to disobey the law of God? Would any Christian parent say to his Christian son or daughter, thou shalt commit adultery, go ahead. No. No. So you already recognize the fact that your authority is subservient. It's underneath the authority of God. And therefore, you need to be in step with what God's authority is and what God's commandments are. Also, uh, utterly important for you to understand what God's will is. When it comes to ethical choices, moral decisions, political stances, matters of conscience, very important for you to know the scriptures. Or you'll waffle, or you'll compromise, or you'll fold your tent, or you'll end up looking like just about everybody else in the broad liberal culture. All right. <clears throat> One last point before we go to the break, and that's the exegetical issue with the translation of verse 49. Now, you'll notice I arranged three translations on your outline. The famous King James, I must be about my father's business. The New American Standard, which I have in front of me and some of you do. I must be in my father's house. You will notice that I placed house in your outline in italics. Why did I do that? 
It's not the word in the Greek. That's right. There is no word house, oikos, in the Greek text. The literal Greek, which I placed there, has the Greek word tois, which means things. I must be in the things of my father. Or paraphrased, I must be about the affairs of my father. Or I must be concerned with the matters of my father. Then how did we get house out of things? Because of old traditions that go back to the church fathers. But it's not in the Greek text. And therefore, I think it takes away from the sense of what Jesus is saying. One of the influences for putting house there is that he's sitting in the temple, which in that time was God's house. So the place influences the choice of translation. But it narrows the range of the implication. I must be in my father's house. No, he's about more than his father's house. He's about his father's entire range of affairs, not just those that deal with the sacred temple. So you see, you've restricted it. That broad Greek word is now localized to a particular place. No. Sorry. I'm going to be a literalist. Call me a fundamentalist if you wish. I'll wear it gladly on this one. And the must, you see. Notice the must. It's a very strong Greek particle, which means Necessity, absolutely essential necessity. I must be about my father's business, even though I love you, Joseph and Mary. Okay. Time for a break. Now we have the opportunity to notice the relation of this incident to the human development of Jesus. That is to say, his growth as a biological human being, his human nature conformed to the stages of growth and maturation of a typical human, while not forgetting he is a theanthropic being. He is God-man, even at age 12. We've already traced these, that is, stylistically, Luke's gospel presents Jesus as a baby infant in verse 16 of chapter 2. Then as a child or a boy, our narrative tonight, verse 43 of chapter 2. And finally, as an adult, about 30 years of age, in verse 23 of chapter 3. Luke's gospel traces the human development of Jesus from infant to boy to man. That includes his human biological, intellectual, and spiritual development from infancy to childhood to adulthood. Now, on that matter, which, of course, is a fascinating series for reflection, I cannot commend highly enough B.B. Warfield's excellent short article on the human development of Jesus. And you'll see the link to that article on the internet on your outline, or if you prefer, set your browser to Warfield plus human development and it'll come up. 
<clears throat> it's not a very long article, but it is indeed very well done. And it, uh, <clears throat> it stimulates your thinking about Jesus' human development, about his thinking as he's coming from infant to boy to man. Warfield, in that article, <clears throat> quotes one of the second century A.D. church fathers, namely Irenaeus of Lyon in France, <clears throat> from his monumental work, that is, Irenaeus's monumental work against heresies. Now, I have written <clears throat> my own uh, reflections on the theological system of Irenaeus, uh, particularly his redemptive historical approach to the Bible, which he describes as recapitulation. And uh, I have also placed upon uh, your outline at the bottom of the second page the citation that Orfield is referring to when he cites Irenaeus in defense of this pattern of the development of Jesus through the stages of human development. <clears throat> now, uh, let me take a look at uh, the paragraph uh, from my own pen, which appears uh, in the center of that second page, is Christ Recapitulates Adam. This is an article I wrote several years ago. <clears throat> Actually, it was an address I gave at a K-Root conference here in this room years ago, <clears throat> written up for publication. Uh, <clears throat> that line, Christ Recapitulates Adam, may... Uh, <clears throat> cause you to bewilderment, uh, cause you to pause. But what Irenaeus is saying in that notion is that Jesus is the second Adam. That's what he's saying. <clears throat> he's saying the same thing Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, first Adam, second Adam, only when Irenaeus is talking about Jesus recapitulating, he's talking about him going through what Adam went through. <clears throat> And, of course, that would involve for us in Reformed theology, a covenant of works, etc. <clears throat> now, Irenaeus doesn't get into that. But nonetheless, <clears throat> uh, he has this notion that Jesus in his incarnation, Jesus in his growth, Jesus in his maturation is recapitulating every stage in Adamic human nature. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> Irenaeus noting this, then he goes on to talk about how Jesus redeems those stages, or sanctifies those stages. <clears throat> and that's where you come to the quotation that's a, a, a little darker at the bottom of the page, which is the direct words of Irenaeus with respect to this point. Notice what he says. And this is, <clears throat> you know, this is uh, less than 200 years after Jesus. It says, uh, Irenaeus in France thinking over what the significance of Jesus' human life is. And this is what he says. This is really remarkable stuff. He came. Jesus came to save all through means of himself. All, I say, who through him are born again to God. Now, notice, he's not talking about universal salvation there, so don't misunderstand. All who are born again unto God. He came to save infants and children and boys and youths and old men, and we could say old women as well. In other words, male, male and female alike. Now, since he came to save them, he passed through every age. Look at that. He passed through every age, becoming an infant for infants, thus sanctifying infants. A child for children, thus sanctifying those who are of this age. A youth for youth, thus sanctifying them for the Lord. So likewise, he was an old man for old men. 
Now, this is an unusual thing that I mentioned up above in my paragraph. Irenaeus thought that Jesus was crucified when he was 50 years old. And then in, in, in Palestinian culture of that time, that would have been an old man. Now, he's wrong about that, but nonetheless, you see, this, you see his principle, that he might be a perfect master for all, not merely as respects the setting forth of the truth, but also as regards age sanctifying at the same time the aged also. <clears throat> Have you ever really thought about that? That Jesus went through the stages of human development in order that he might redeem persons in those stages. That he might sanctify persons in those stages. That he might sanctify even infants. We know of one sanctified infant from his mother's womb, John the Baptist. <clears throat> Certainly may be others. They may sanctify children. We might wonder about that in our day, but nonetheless it is possible. All things are possible with God. He might sanctify youths or teenagers. That's another challenge, but nonetheless the grace of God is sufficient. And then he might sanctify us old codgers. Yes, that is also true. Praise God for his mercy. <clears throat> but Irenaeus in this statement forces us to think about this story in Luke 2 in a way that we don't usually reflect on it. We think of this story in terms of Jesus sitting around with these teachers and having a good old-fashioned Q&A, which is true. Not denying that, but irony is profound, is penetrating profoundly beyond that. Saying, look here, here's a 12 year old boy. And what he's doing is done, he's doing to the glory of God as a 12 year old boy in the midst of these old teachers and doctors. And on top of that, he was an infant. So he became an infant as we are infants, he becomes a young boy as we become young boys or girls, he becomes an adult as we become adult and so on and so forth. And he does that so that he can save people in every stage. He lives through the experience so he can save those in the experience. That is remarkable stuff. Have you ever thought of that? Irenaeus helps you think beyond the obvious, shall we say, potential sentimentality of the story of Jesus amongst the teachers in the temple, sadly, the way the story was presented in my Sunday school days. Well, we have already noticed the parallel use of the Greek participle hearing or listening in verses 46 and 47. Now we want to observe the reciprocal nature of that hearing or listening. What I mean by that is Jesus is listening to or hearing the teachers in verse 46. That's what the text says. The teachers are listening to or hearing Jesus in verse 47. That's what the text says. This is an exercise then in mutual, reciprocal, interrelated, complementary listening. It is a two-way street. That's what the text is telling you. He listens to them. They listen to him. Now, in my opinion, that means that the mutual reciprocity applies to everything else in 
these two verses, 46 and 47. If Jesus listens to them, they reciprocate by listening to him. If Jesus asks them questions, they reciprocate by asking him questions. If Jesus understands them, they reciprocate by understanding him. If Jesus answers their questions, they answer his questions. This is a complimentary Q&A session. And the doctors, the teachers, are amazed at the boy Jesus' intelligence, his wisdom, and his inquisitiveness. They are filled with wonder at the mind of this boy. But we dare not forget the heart of this boy. No. Because that heart and mind are in an inseparable interrelationship. For what he knows with his mind about his Heavenly Father, he loves with his heart about his Heavenly Father. But it is the mind that is on display in this incident primarily. The mind of this boy who sits in the middle, in the center, in the focal position of this mutual, reciprocal, interrelated, complementary exchange. Remember, he's surrounded by them. He is in the center of this audience. They're all looking steadfastly at Jesus. In truth, this boy's understanding transcends their own. That's the truth of it. His understanding transcends their own. He is the son of his father in heaven, and he has all understanding. In truth, this boy's questions transcend their own. He is the son of his father in heaven, and he knows the answers to his own questions. In truth, this boy's wisdom transcends their own. He is the son of his father in heaven. What does Paul say of him? Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.24 says, He is the wisdom of God. That's who they're listening to. The very incarnation of the wisdom of God himself sitting in their midst. But, but, what the boy Jesus performs in the temple at age 12, amazing with wonderment the teachers of the scriptures, the man Jesus does not perform in the temple at age 33. But, in Luke 21, during the last week of Jesus' life, at the approach of another Passover feast, Jesus is teaching. Notice that word in chapter 21, verse 37. Jesus teaching the same Greek 
cognate word for the teachers in chapter 2, verse 46. Jesus is teaching daily. Every day in that last week, he is teaching in the temple. And in chapter 22, verse 2, the scribes and the scribes, the scribes and the priests, the teachers of the scriptures, the scribes and the chief priests are not amazed. They are not amazed with wonder at his teaching. They are seeking, very same Greek word in chapter 2, verses 48 and 49, they are seeking to put him to death. And now we are amazed. Amazed with incredulity at the refusal to understand the man Jesus. The evil-hearted wish to listen no more to his teaching in the temple or anywhere else but to silence his tongue in death, to shut down his mind with execution, to destroy his wisdom with crucifixion, and to taunt him with questions as he hangs from nails on a bloody gibbet. Here is a stark contrast. Amazement turned to hatred. Wonder now become plots to kill the boy, become man. Allowing him to sit in the midst of their discussions now become centering him upon a cross between two thieves. The end of Luke's gospel as the beginning of Luke's gospel, only here in direct reversal. Now, I am not suggesting naively that the same teachers at the age of 12, at Jesus age 12 are there on the scene at age 33 in chapter 21 and 22. That's incidental. But the drama of the stark opposition jumps out at you as you look once again at the relationship between the beginning of Luke's narrative and the end of Luke's narrative of the Jesus at age 12 and the Jesus at age 33, surrounded by the teachers of the law in both instances. And how at the end in his last week they have turned upon him seeking to destroy him. How could it be? Save to the evil heart of unbelief. We return then to the temple in Jerusalem and the 12-year-old Jesus in the middle of the teachers of the scriptures. Jesus at the center of the amazement of his audience, Jesus at the focal point of the astonishment of his parents. You see, throughout this story, every eye is fixed on Jesus. Every participant in this story, apart from Jesus, is looking at him. That's what Jesus wants, that's what Luke wants you to do. He wants you to be looking at Jesus. This story invites you into the drama. 
of looking at Jesus. This pericope is not only unique or singular, as I said at the outset. It is revealing something to us about Jesus, which is unique and singular. No 12-year-old boy ever did this. No 12-year-old child has ever done what this 12-year-old child did. And why is that? Because no 12-year-old child has begun to reveal, as Jesus does at age 12, no child has begun to reveal in a provisional manner his omniscience. His omniscience. The development in the human nature of Jesus is united to the consciousness of his divine and omniscient nature. And in Luke 2, 40 to 52, we catch a glimmer of the revelation of that divine omniscience manifest in the human nature of the 12-year-old boy from Nazareth. Luke records it because it is a distinctive and characteristic mark of the identity of this once-upon-a-time infant, now a boy of 12 years. Who is the babe wrapped in swaddling claws lying in a manger? Who is the boy surrounded by learned teachers in the midst of God's temple? He is not an infant a child from the natural world of Caesar's Pax Romana with its pseudo-divine imperial tyrant. He is not. No, he is an infant, a child from the supernatural world of God's Pax Christi with its genuinely divine shepherd redeemer. He is not an infant, a child vaunted, with the secular glory of a city, an empire which is destined to crumble into dust, ashes, and death. There are no more Caesars sitting on chairs in Rome. No, he is an infant, a child hailed by the heavenly glory of angel choirs, a prince, a ruler, a king of a kingdom which has no end save eternal resurrection life because his eternal resurrection life is seated on that throne at the right hand of glory. The supernatural order of heaven's eschaton breaks in with this infant, breaks in with this 12-year-old boy, breaks in via angelic messengers, angel choruses, Miracle conceptions, miracle birth, temple amazement, temple astonishment, all bearing witness to a baby who is from that supernatural world, a baby who is son of God, son of his father in heaven, the only 12-year-old child in history who could say, I must be about my father's affairs in wisdom, in understanding, in omniscience, as my Father's eternally begotten Son, co-equal Lord, Christ, Savior, David-eyed, light to the Gentiles, and redemption of Israel. 
put it all together and add up the Christological titles that you've had in the space of two short chapters in this gospel according to law to Luke, and you've got a treasure trove of who Jesus is. Rich imagery of who he is and what he brings and what his identity is. All of that imagery revealed to you through these words, through this gospel, through these narratives, in order to draw your heart and mind to him. His heart and mind in incarnate fashion being revealed so that he may draw your heart and mind to him. It's not hard. It doesn't need rocket science. It is the tender invitation of this 12-year-old boy. Yes, even at age 12, he is inviting you into the mind and heart of his Father in heaven, which is the mind and heart of this Son of that Father in heaven. There are treasures there, riches that you cannot estimate. Treasures which eye hath not seen, nor hath there entered into the heart of man. What that father and son has prepared for those who love him. Jesus in the temple of Jerusalem says, this is who I am. This is who I am on day one of my birth. On year 12 of my growth, in year 33 of my manhood, and timeless eternity of my resurrection glory. I am, saith the Lord Jesus, I am the Son of my Father in heaven, my Father in heaven delights in me. His son. Come unto me. Come unto me. And you will be filled. Any questions <clears throat> about this narrative? Pete? Uh, is not the age of 12 significant? That is the age when a Jewish boy would make our mitzvah when he became a man and had to uh, take upon himself the responsibilities of the keeping of the law? It could be. I'm not particularly impressed with that, but it could be a reason why he picks age 12. I wouldn't, I'm, not, I'm not in favor of it simply because I'm not persuaded by it, but I'm not persuaded by it because I think there's a richer story here than just simply Jewish bar mitzvah tradition. Oh, yeah, obviously. From what you said. <laughs> But isn't that included? It's a possibility. I'm not, I'm not dogmatically ruling it out. I'm just not impressed by it. David? That's a personal prejudice on my part. You know, I don't have anything. <laughs> Go ahead, David. Uh, I am praying the phrases delicately, but the B.B. Warfield... Uh, 
excerpt or rephrasing. Uh, I would think that being in Adam and being in Christ are anti-quotal. And so I guess I don't understand what recapitulation means. As in Christ shall also be made alive, that's all whom they represent. Well, the, the issue there is 1 Corinthians 15, 44, and 45, where Paul uses that language, first and second Adam, and he draws the relationship between the two of them intentionally. So, I don't, uh, they are antipodal in some ways, but they are synthetic in other ways. For instance, Adam is a man, Jesus is a man. Adam is given uh, work to do. Jesus is given work to do. Adam is given a command. Jesus is given commands. Um, so there are re- reciprocal similarities and there are distinctions. You know, Adam is called a son of God here in Luke 3. Jesus is called a son of God. There are, there are, there's a relationship there, but of course there's a great separation between the nature of the son, the divine sonship in each case. So <clears throat> what Paul is doing, uh, is what Irenaeus is picking up on. And, and he is building a history of redemption or a theology of salvation out of that, that what the first Adam lost, the second Adam gained and reclaimed. So in that sense, they're also antithetical, but they're antithetical in terms of uh, losing paradise and gaining paradise back, to use Milton's imagery. Ben, you had your hand up. I was thinking of the parents. It is, it's highly significant to see that these people went around to Jerusalem for three days looking for him. He, he was with them for 12 years, and he had never yet impressed them with his divinity, with his, with his central, uh, that, he was, that, that all of the things of God were central to him. So they should have gone to the temple right away, thinking that he was left there. Yeah, uh, it, it, that's a useful observation, Then, By the same token, he's with his disciples for three years, and they don't get the fact that he's going to rise from the dead. So, in other words, it, it, this, is, this is a case where Mary treasures these things in her heart, but it doesn't hit her between the eyes as to really what it's all about. And, you know, she'll get one more rebuke at Cana. So, and I don't regard this as a rebuke. I just regard this as a statement of pr- proper relationship here. Uh, Like exactly, exactly, and, and 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 the disciples as well. You know, the blindness of the disciples to Jesus' very clear uh, predictions of his death and his resurrection, and they did not expect it on Easter Sunday until they actually saw the empty tomb and saw himself. So, so yes, we're 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 awfully dense sometimes. Even 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 teachers. What was somebody? Cheryl. I will not believe until I actually see right. the 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 wounds. He he did say that. that Doubting Thomas. Yes. That he would, if he touched it, saw it, touched it, he would believe it. Testimony of his other friends wasn't enough. Eyewitness testimony is very strong, but of course the eyewitness testimony of other reliable friends is also strong. Go ahead, Art. You mentioned earlier that uh, you think it's more likely than not that this was his second time in Jerusalem. 
temple, not the 13th time. So if so, could Pete's point be relevant? Maybe they took him when he was 12 years old because he had reached that stage. You're not supposed to be shooting holes in my personal prejudice. I'm supporting. You're in good company supporting the otter gray here out there. I'm supporting you, Jim, in your contention that Jesus, this wasn't his 13th time in Jerusalem temple, but only his second. And I'm suggesting that perhaps a reason for that, if his parents didn't take him the first 11 times until he was 12, was that he had reached a special age to qualify to go to Jerusalem with him. Yeah, I agree with your statement there that I don't think they had taken him. And I think that that's supported by the fact that this is the first record of it. And that's one of the reasons. The record is telling me something about the background details of when he came to Passover for the first time. But I can't push that dogmatically, so I have to admit that there's some truth in what Pete says. But plus it says his parents went to Jerusalem every year. It doesn't say his parents and Jesus went to Jerusalem. Correct. Thank you for helping me. And him, too. I'm sorry. Cheryl? How long a journey was it from Nazareth to Jerusalem? About three days. About three days. So that would be significant. Would it not be in their life that you have a three-day journey? Yes, that's part of what makes that verse 46 statement about three days reasonable. They were a day out, and it took them a day to get back, and it took them a day to find him. Bob, you're ahead. Well, I was thinking that if Jesus had gone every year, then the teachers of the law would have had more chances to interview him and be impressed with him before that happened. That's mentioned. Quite possibly. And the fact that this is the first record of that may mean that this is the first incident in which it occurred. Mary, you come stepping out from the back. That usually means you have a profound question. Is there something I can't resist saying? At his birth, the angels declared him to be the Son of God. At his circumcision, Simeon declared him to be the Son of God. And now this is the feast of the Passover, which is about him. And to put it together with what Peter said, at 12 they were of age to obey the law. It says elsewhere that he fulfilled all the law for us. So he is there fulfilling the law. And he is in the temple because the temple is the presence of God with us, God in the midst of his people. And Jesus' name is Emmanuel, God with us. I like your allusion to the Exodus 12 statement about the 12-year-old children at the Passover. That I hadn't thought about, so that's food for consideration, both in support of Pete and also in support of the broader paradigm of Exodus paradigm. Thank you. Any other comments or observations? Oh, Randy, you had your hand up. Or you put your hand down. Come on. There must have been some Pharisees out there. You haven't complained tonight, so 
I know. There must have been some Pharisees. He said it was incidental, but it still seems notable that there must have been some Pharisees that remembered him from when he was 12 years old, when he was 33. Well, understand that these are teachers of the law. They're not labeled in chapter 2 as scribes or Pharisees. But in chapter 22, they are. So that is a different function. Well, yeah, I know, but I mean, there would be... I'm sure there's a few of those guys were alive, and they would have remembered Jesus, I'm sure. I mean, that's almost a certainty, isn't it, or not? Well, you have a right to your certain belief. I mean... The text is silent. Not, yeah, I know the text is silent, and, but I mean, the Pharisees are idiots anyways, obviously. Well, you, you're instilling us with new Protestant traditions. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks for your interaction. Now, wait the way forward. Uh, I envision one or two more uh, meetings on Thursday night, uh, Lord willing. Uh, the reason is that we usually have uh, 13 weeks of this because we have 13 week semester in the, the seminary. So. Uh, Next Thursday night, we're going to look at Tiberius Caesar, who begins chapter 3. The first verse mentions Tiberius Caesar, so we want to look at his career and also the significance of Luke dropping his name into this. I've already talked about that a little bit. And, in fact, I distributed a paper and placed it uh, on the Internet in terms of a link to my article on Tiberius Caesar which comes out of Kavrick. So if you want an easy way to get the article, if you, uh, I'd handed it out at the second meeting of this semester, <clears throat> week two. Uh, <clears throat> so if you want an easy way to get it because you don't have it anymore and you want to have it in your hand next week, I'll be working off of that manuscript as we uh, speak. In any event, <clears throat> uh, go to week two of this Luke Infancy series, the opening page of nwts.edu, it says there's a new series. It has here uh, highlighted. Click on here. You'll go to the list of the uh, of the ten that have been done so far. Uh, number two, you'll see handouts. Click on handout and go to the article which is referred to at chapter three, verse one on that handout. And you can print out the article on Tiberius Caesar if you wish. You're not that's, you're not required, but if you'd like to have it in your hand, that that will be the handout for next time. And then uh, possibly uh, a week after that, the last meeting on Luke will be Luke chapter 4. So I will have said something about Luke 1, Luke 2, Luke 3, verse 1, and Luke 4. That means there's a lot of Luke to do, but that's the end because the summer comes upon us and the semester is over and we break for the summer, as you know. But uh, looking forward to next fall, uh, I'm going to take on the book of Obadiah over the summer. So I'll be working on the Hebrew text and preparing a series on the prophet Obadiah. <clears throat> these uh, wallflower books of the Bible, these uh, unknown characters, uh, <clears throat> we, we, we need to be better acquainted with them. So at any rate, Obadiah next on the list. Let's close with prayer. Father, we bless you for your son. Blessed Lord Jesus, we rejoice in your Father, and together with the Spirit of Father and Son, we adore you, Holy Trinity. And in this revelation, this self-disclosure, 
of your son at 12 years of age, we rejoice in the fact that he is the wisdom of God. And he displays that wisdom to the amazement of those that heard and questioned and answered him. And those that he, he listened to questioned and answered in return. We bless you for this one who is above all things our precious Redeemer, to whom our hearts and minds are drawn in devotion and love and obedience. O oh Lord, bless us that in Irenaeus's word we might be sanctified at whatever stage we are because we have come to be born again to love Jesus. And his life is even in principle recapitulated in our own as we mirror him through our union, blessed, precious union with his grace, his life, death, and resurrection. We offer this prayer in the name of the boy Jesus who called you Father and whom you called Son. Amen.